Well, we are getting back into a series, a short series, just three weeks long, and we're talking about resolving conflict, something that is, uh, happens in all of our lives. In fact, if you ever want to know just how sinful your own human heart is, take a road trip with your family. <laughs> there was a pastor uh, that I knew. Uh, he, he had two kids. They were twin kids, and they got ready to take the road trip, and uh, the kids are in the back seat a daughter, an older daughter, and a younger son. And the younger son uh, had some illness that day, and he had some polyps in his nose. It wasn't a function of, you know, he wasn't like a, a glue sniffer or, or a drug guy. I mean, that's not why he had problems with the nose that day. It, it just, he had an illness, and therefore, here were the polyps. And as a result of that, he had a little wheeze. He would breathe, and it would be like, his daughter sat in the back seat hour after hour of the road trip hearing, after a while, she said, I can't take it anymore. And dad turns around and says, you know, what do you want me to do? Make him stop. Translation, I hope he dies. Dad did not take her up on that, and she had to go hour after hour of just listening to the wheeze. Conflict comes to us all the time, and we're going to continue exploring conflict this morning, and I want to just do a brief review of two of the most important things I covered last week. There were slides that were right next to each other, and it's the definition of conflict. Here it is. Conflict is a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates somebody's goals or desires. At its foundation, that's what conflict is. I want one thing, you want something else, and so we have a difference. Let me put that into layman's language for you, the next slide. Conflict happens when you don't get what you want. It's that simple. You want one thing, somebody else wants something else, and you, as a result of that, you have some conflict. I talked to somebody last week, and she said, you know, my husband and I really don't have any conflict. And I thought, really? Are you alive? Denise and I have a difference in what we want at times. And it's not saying we don't work through that. But when you have that at its core, a difference in goals or desires or purposes... That is the beginning of conflict. And of course, all of us have that. What's most important to God is how we deal with that. Conflict is a normal part of life. It's not something that any of us need to be ashamed of. And today, we are going to talk about the common responses to our conflict. In other words, what's the knee-jerk reaction that happens inside of you and inside of me when conflict arises? What are the normal things that we would do with that? Now, I want to tell you today, all of us in this room fall into the category of one of two animals. Naturally, of what comes just natural to you, you are either a skunk or a turtle. Let me explain that. A skunk, when conflict happens, everybody going to know about it. You're going to make a mess. And it's like, okay, it's all this like, we're going to get this out in the open right now. You know, it's like, boom, you just pounce on things. The turtle, on the other hand, is the one that, well, you can imagine, just withdraw back into the shell. I hope this all goes away. 
And that's a natural response for all of us. In God's economy, it's so amazing because oftentimes he brings in your family one of both. And so you're in your family maybe leaning towards turtle or somebody's leaning towards skunk. And it's like the two of those together can make some real fireworks. You probably learned that from your parents. Your parents, whether or not they said, sit down, I want to teach you about conflict. They taught you by their very actions the way that you probably, you know, you probably follow the pattern of. And maybe it's partly your personality. You have a personality that's maybe more skunkish or more turtleish, And that's kind of the natural response that is, uh, you know, the way you do it. I want to remind you today that I'm using materials from a group called the Peacemaker Ministries. And I introduced a book last week. It's called Resolving Everyday Conflict. I've got a picture of that on the screen there. Had somebody email me this week and say, man, where's that book been all my life? Thank you so much for that. And so they just really commended the book. Uh, I've got a few copies left, not many of them. They're five bucks. I'm giving them to you for half price. And I just think it's a book that should be on everybody's shelf because it, it does such a good job of explaining how to respond to conflict in healthy and redeeming ways. Well, today, as we get ready to uh, unpack more about conflict, we're really going to be using a tool that's inside the book and is explained inside the book. And the tool is called the slippery slope. It's a semicircle that has three broad categories that explain the ways that you can respond to uh, conflict. Two of them negative and very natural of what we would do, and the one near the top is the one that God is calling us to exercise. Let me just give you in broad strokes. There's, first of all, escape responses, and when you escape, you're acting very turtle-like, and you're attempting to avoid conflict and not wade into it at all. You're hoping it'll just go away. When you're using the attack responses, which are on the right, and they are the ones that are red in this diagram, you're using force, and you're hoping to get your needs met by using force against somebody else. And at that moment, you don't much care about the relationship. You just want what you want. And so you're straight ahead and you're in attack mode. If you're in the peacemaking mode, then you're using prayer and discussion and forgiveness in an attempt to arrive at a reconciliation that is healthy and good for everybody involved. Well, today, we're going to take a closer look at these three main responses, and I want to start with the ones that are on the left side of your screen there, and they're called the escape responses. By the way, I'm going to take a little bit more time on some today and a little less time on others. There's quite a lot in that little chart there for you, and again, if you want to know more about that, I hope you'll get the book because, again, it will explain a lot of this in greater detail but I'll cover some of them real briefly and some of them a little bit more if I think those are ones that we really need to understand better. Let's start off with the first response that is an escape response, and it's denial. It's pretending the problem does not exist. And every time that we are pretending something doesn't exist as a problem, then we are we're trying to insulate ourselves. We're trying to just stay away from what seems very problematic. And so it's like, I hope it stays over there. Let me give you an example. Every time you're driving your car and you see the check engine light come up, it's possible to usually continue driving your car. You just continue to drive and you can pretend, I'm going to pretend that light's not on right now. Now, is that a good long-term strategy? No. If you do that, chances are pretty good. At some point, your car's going to go, I ain't going anymore because you're neglecting me. 
And that's the same with conflict. Denial can be a strategy that works for a period of time, but usually is not a good long-term strategy because it never addresses really what's going on. The second escape response is flight. It's pulling back or pulling away, and it's another way to escape from a conflict. Here's usually the form that it takes. It takes the form of leaving a relationship. It takes the form of quitting a job. It takes the form of filing for divorce. It takes the form of leaving your church. All of those are escape responses. They usually are not addressing the problem at all. They're just changing it and almost putting the relationship on hibernation in some way. Flight happens when you, for instance, see a person at the grocery store and you know that you've had some harsh words or or there's some kind of a friction there and you see that person at the grocery store and you're like, inside, you're like, how do I get to a different aisle? I don't want to engage them right now. And so, you know, you're, you're like, oh, did I leave the store? Do I just go a different aisle? Hope they don't come over to me. And so inside, you're like, I just want flight because I don't want to deal with this. Flight is a coping mechanism. It's usually trying to bubble wrap ourselves so that we don't feel the effects of what we know is there. And so we're just, we're just insulating ourselves with the hope that this will all just kind of go away and that I can pull back from it. Now, I want to tell you, there is an appropriate time for some level of flight. And if you're in a really heated time with somebody and you just need to compose yourself, you just need to think through your thoughts, you just need to pray, those are appropriate times in which you could pull back and you can take some time to collect yourself and then come back to re-engage. That would be an appropriate way to have some flight or some uh, ability to create some separation. I would also say this. Anytime there is, especially in a marriage relationship, uh, the potential for some abuse of some kind or physical harm, that's a time in which flight is appropriate. And so I want to acknowledge that. And there's been times in my time at church life in which we've had to step in and say, I think it's better if you're out of the house right now. It just seems to be so uh, abusive and, and potentially so harmful physically for you. Let's move you away from that. So again, that there are times for that. But usually that's not what's happening and usually our escape response to fly away is not promoting any health or any long-term good in resolving relationships. All right, I'm gonna give you one more. It's very extreme, but the uh, third escape response is suicide. It's taking your own life. You remember Judas Iscariot in the Bible? Judas Iscariot deceives and, and goes about Uh, going against Jesus and obviously turning him in to authorities. He feels so desperate on the inside that he takes the 30 pieces of silver given to him by the Sanhedrin and he throws it back into the temple and then he goes off and hangs himself. Suicide is an escape response, but I'm here to tell you it never is a solution for conflict and it always creates larger problems for friends, for family, for your church, If you love people around you, I'm here to tell you that's not ever a good solution. I'll never forget, it was a snowy February when we lived in Colorado. I got the call from a man I knew very well from church, and he said, Pastor, I need for you to come over right now. My son is in the basement, and he's taken his life. I was with that family. I wept with that family. I was 
with that family an hour later when the police showed up to actually ask a lot of questions. It was post-Columbine, so there was all kinds of stuff that they needed to do, like even take, uh, they needed to swab their hands to see if there was any gun residue on their hands. So I had to just calm them down and just say, it's just protocol. We walked through months together, weeks thereafter of them always on the inside of much self-recrimination and wading through a memorial service and all the rest. It, It was just, it was horrendous. Suicide is never a good long-term solution, especially for those that are all left behind who are picking up the pieces. So those are the escape responses. That's what turtles do. They deny, they fly away, or take their own lives. Let's discover the attack responses, and this is what skunks do. First is assault. It's using force or intimidation. And some people try to overcome their opponent by using intimidation. It could be verbal. It could be physical. And they try to destroy the other person in an attempt to get what they want. And it always makes conflict worse, and it always destroys relationships. Let me give you an example of this that I read just this week. It just happened in Florida. There were neighbors. One lived above the other. And the neighbor that lived below kept on saying, The people above me are just too loud. They're walking across the floors. There's drawers in and out. There's vacuuming noises. It's just too much for me. And and he began to complain. And he complained to, first of all, the property manager. He even called the police to file a report over the loud noises that were happening above. The people above were trying to do the best that they could, but they had a young baby. And they were like, you know, I'm sorry, but we're, you know, we're vacuuming at times. We're walking across our floor. We don't mean to be causing problems, but apparently we are. And the guy just could not get any relief, and he was very angry. So suddenly, they began in their apartment smelling smells that they had never smelled before. They, they were smelling stuff that seemed like really like toxic smells. And every time that they would smell it over the course of time, they would get ill, and they would vomit. And they were like, what is going on? And it's like, is, our, is there something going on with our heater? Is there something going on with our water heater? They called the manager in again just for them to explore the apartment. They said, yeah, I sure smell that, but I don't know what it is. They even called the fire department to come in to explore. No explanation for it. They said, something's going on here. I think there's some kind of foul play. And so they put up a little webcam, a little nanny cam that was outside their door so they could see what was happening, who was coming in or going out or who was doing whatever. Now, what I didn't tell you is that the man who lived below them was a Ph.D. student in chemistry. And this is the picture that they found. He would come up to their door with a little syringe and underneath the door would put this foreign substance that he knew was going to be smell terrible and was going to cause them to become ill. I mean, I think they're still doing forensic tests to find out exactly what the chemical was. But once they discovered that, that guy was arrested and charged with assault. What a great example of what assault is. It's saying, I've got this conflict, I don't know how to resolve it, and I'm going to punish you, I'm going to harm you with the hope that this will resolve it. And that is one of the most common attack responses. Force will never, it'll never preserve relationship for sure, and oftentimes doesn't get what we ultimately really want. The second form of attack response is litigation. It's going to court. 
And so many times that damages relationship, it diminishes our Christian witness, and it fails to get the kind of justice that we really want. And that's why in the scriptures we are commanded so many times, do everything that you can to stay out of court, especially with a brother or a sister in Christ. Try to resolve that within the church because the consequences of that are oftentimes damaging and you don't want that. The third is the other extreme. I said it was suicide if you escape. If it's an attack response, it's murder. And murder is, again, killing somebody else. You're so desperate for the win that you try to kill somebody. And in our context, I doubt many of us are physically killing. But we are at times in our hearts harboring such anger and vitriol against somebody else that we, it's like killing them. And so many times, again, with our tongues, we are accomplishing that killing many times over against that person. And so it's possible, again, that although we're not physically killing somebody or murdering somebody, we are, in essence, accomplishing that within our hearts. All right, those are the attack responses. They are assault, litigation, and murder. And so if we've got the two extreme responses, and normally in the flesh, that's where we are, we're going to default into either escape or attack, That's what we're going to do. And so what are our options? What else could we do if we don't do that? Well, that is the top of the semicircle. And you'll see that it is known as the peacemaking responses. And that's what I want to cover now. Those are the ones that are going to require some work. They're going to require some prayer, some courage, some guidance by the Holy Spirit. All of those things are going to need, you're going to need if you're going to pursue a peacemaking response They're the ones that are focused upon repairing a broken relationship. It's called the slippery slope. You'll see that that's the title of this. It's called the slippery slope because in order to stay up there, you've got to really trust God in some important ways because it's always tempting to fall off to one side or the other, probably towards your normal reaction. You're like, it's too much work to stay up there. Let me just go and escape. It's too much work to stay up there. Let me just go and attack. And so it's the slippery slope because it's going to take some effort, some prayer, and some guidance from God in order to stay on top of the slippery slope. This is what James chapter 3 says. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And that's God's promise to us. If we are individuals that are peacemaking individuals, we want to stay on top of that slippery slope. There are all kinds of benefits that are going to come to us. Healthier relationships around us, good standing with God, a society that's better, a church that's better. And so he's saying peacemaking is worth the effort and it's my uh, desire for that that is so uh, front and foremost with God. In fact, I just read this this week. Did you know that in all of the New Testament letters, there's some command or allusion to the desire for the church to be at peace. That's how important it is. Every letter, every epistle in the New Testament has something about peace which is required or desired for the church. And so that's how much God wants this. All right, the six responses, if you go back to the, uh, the, yeah, the next one, go to the next one with the, yeah, there we go. Um, The six responses are broken into two halves. And I want you to look at that real quickly and just kind of digest this with me before we get into those. On the left-hand side are what are called personal responses of peacemaking. And those are the ones you're going to just go to a person individually. You're just going to work it out between you and them. 
The assisted responses are those that are going to require somebody else. You're going to invite somebody else into the process in order to get to a spot of peacemaking. So let's cover both, of, both sides of that, the personal and the assisted, and let's start off again with uh, the very first peacemaking response that is personal. Here it is. It probably won't be a big surprise to you, but oh, so important. It's overlook an offense. This is the deliberate decision not to pursue an offense. And many disputes or many things that we feel on the inside are so insignificant that we just got to let them go. I'm, I'm back to uh, our, our kids in the back seat. Was there really any other response than just she had to just put up with her brother while he had the nose wheeze? I mean, there was really no other response that they could have to that. And so that was a time in which it would have been productive to just overlook that. I want to give you something today that I hope is helpful to you because it's four questions to ask in order to know whether or not you could overlook an offense. Here are those four questions. Has it permanently damaged a relationship? In other words, is a relationship in such tatters that I can't overlook this? It, it has to be addressed because it's just going to continue to be a volcano. Is it seriously hurting other people? Are other people around that individual feeling the effects of that and if we neglect that, there's going to be ongoing pain for a lot of other people. Is it seriously hurting the offender himself? Maybe them on the inside, their best, their betterment, their health, their progress is being hindered in some way. And is the offense seriously dishonoring to God? So you look through those questions and you say, if I can say yes to any of those questions, yes, this is permanently hurting people around that individual. Yes, this is a serious offense to God. If I'm saying yes to any of those things, then I have to take the next step. I can't just overlook the offense. But I'll be honest with you. There are so many times in which it's possible to just say no to all those questions and say, I just got to get over it. I'm just going to forgive right now. I'm just going to uh, not dwell on this any longer. I'm not going to bring it up anymore. I'm just going to say that's just the way this is, and we're just going to move on. And there's many times in life in which you have the opportunity to do the first act of peacemaking, which is just to overlook an offense. All right, if you can't do that, then the next step is reconciliation. This is resolving personal or relational issues through confession, loving correction, and forgiveness. And this is the main way that we handle conflict. If an offense is too serious to overlook, if relationships are just too damaged, if you need some big repair, then reconciliation is the approach that you're going to take. The most famous passage for this is Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, Christ spells out for his church the way he wants us to resolve our conflicts. And many times people have gone back to that passage over and over again. And this is the way that it starts. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. So you notice this is a personal response of peacemaking, not an assisted response because nobody else is involved. You're just going to your brother and you're saying, hey, I've got some issues. How can we resolve this with each other? And so this is the form of reconciliation. And I'll just give you a little hint. Next week, I'm going to give you a four-stage process for this step right here. If you're trying to reconcile with somebody else, what are the four steps that you're going to take in order to prepare yourself and, and potentially even prepare, prepare the other person for coming together with something that will be lasting and good. So that's just a, a little forecast for where we're going. 
I will just tell you in my own life, the greatest reconciliation I've ever had is with my dad. My parents divorced when I was 16 years old. And at the time they divorced, I thought, you know, not that big a deal. But I got older. I became a follower of Jesus. I got into my 20s, and I realized some of the scars that were left in my life from my parents' divorce. And I arrived at a space in which I said, you know what, I think I need to talk to Dad about that. And I went to Dad and explained the effects of the divorce upon me and what happened, some things that I had longed for that didn't come about. And my dad gave me a great gift of listening so carefully and saying these words, son, I am so sorry. And we repaired things. It's not as if the divorce never happened. It's not as if none of us had pain through that. All of that was true. All of that had happened. But something transpired that was a true and ongoing reconciliation until the rest of his life. And I am so grateful to God that that happened and that we were able to work through that, through that I believe, through the power of Christ operating in both of our lives. All right. We've made our way through overlooking an offense, reconciliation, the main pathway of where we need to go. The third is negotiation, and this is a cooperative bargaining process. And here's what I mean by that. Anytime there's something physical involved, not just relationships, but there's something physical, there's money, there's property, there's something material that we're negotiating over, that needs to go, then go into this spot of negotiation because there's something financial or something physical that needs to be resolved, and oftentimes that is the case. Many times it's just, again, relationships, not as if that's insignificant, but relationships that need to be resolved. If there's something material, then you're going to enter into negotiation. All right. That's the non-assisted or the personal side. Let's move to the assisted side. And the first in that is mediation. It's inviting one or more people to help in the communication. And that is found in Matthew chapter 18, verse 16. This is the way Jesus says it. If they'll not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so you're bringing somebody else along and you're saying, hey, would you come to sit with us and be an impartial person in order for us to continue to talk. You'll ask good questions. Maybe you'll help to clarify things with the hopes that we can come to the space of resolving this together. And I'm just here to tell you, there have been several times in my ministry life in which we've needed to bring that third person in, and it's been so helpful because they are that person that comes and says, hey, let's just listen more carefully to each other. Here's some good things I want you to think about or to digest. And again, in this step, in the mediation step, that, third, that person is not making any decisions for the two of you. They're just helping to bring an environment of health and growth. If that does not work, then the next question or the next step is adjudication. And that's appointing arbiters who will listen to arguments and render a binding decision. What that means is, is that you're going to invite somebody in who's going to basically act like a judge and they're going to come in and say, I'm going to listen to both sides of this, and then I am going to render a judgment that I hope you all can live with, or you have to live with. And that's what that adjudication process is, or that arbitration process is, is bringing that person in that has that decision making on your behalf. Now again, you don't really want to ever get to that spot, right? You hope you can resolve it all the way back to the personal side, because you give up so much freedom to make good decisions when you bring somebody else in that's going to decide what you're going to do. 
And so, you know, fundamentally, you don't really want that, but many times that's where you'll arrive. There's one more step, and that is accountability, and this is the step in which somebody is saying, I have strayed away from the Lord, or they wouldn't say that, but they have. I've strayed away from the Lord, or I no longer want to pursue any peacemaking. And so again, the church's response at that moment is to step in and provide accountability, to promote repentance, to promote justice, to promote forgiveness, and oftentimes to confront that person saying, hey, what you're doing right now is not helping the whole situation, and we want to hold you accountable to the Lord himself and to his word in order for you to take the right steps. This is Matthew 18, verse 17. Here it is. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, And that's the point at which there's some form of church discipline that is given in order for that person to repent and be able to come back. So accountability is that other assisted approach. All right, here's what I want to do. As of just a big overview again, escape responses predominantly focus upon me. They're focusing upon how I can be comfortable, how I can just stay okay. Attack responses are focused on you. This is what you've done wrong. This is the way you need to back off. And so attack responses are all focused out towards you. Peacemaking responses are focused upon us. It's trying to take everybody's interests at heart and trying to arrive at a space in which everybody is the beneficiary of that process. Next week, again, I'm going to give you that four-stage process so that you'll be able to approach a friend and have a possibility for there to be a real reconciliation. And those are four things I've used in my life I can't tell you how many times, and I want them to be beneficial to you. All right, here's what I'll close with today. Every time you have a conflict, you come to this space. Who am I gonna trust? Am I gonna trust me? That's what our default is, right? I'll just do what I want to do. Give her a piece of my mind right now. Bam. And that's what is on the inside of us. The other alternative is, am I going to trust God? Am I going to trust that God is working right now in this situation in ways I can't see? He's allowed this conflict to occur, perhaps for my even benefit. And I am going to decide as an act of my will, that I'm going to believe what God says and I'm going to trust him and take steps forward. Now, does that mean, oh, it's all going to work out rosy, it's going to be perfect? No, it doesn't always mean that. What it does mean is that there is the possibility for something really good to transpire through God's power and it means also that I'm going to stay in good standing with God and that's of great value. So every time we face a conflict, we're asking that fundamental question, who am I trusting right now? Me or God? You see, our natural response to conflict is either to escape or attack. To be the skunk or to be the turtle. That's our fundamental reaction. God has given us a way through the power of his Holy Spirit and through the power of his gospel to actually be peacemakers who help to establish peace with those around us and help to establish peace and reconciliation within his church, which he loves. My question today is, how are you going to trust God in that process right now?
Let's pray. Father, thank you again for uh, giving us scriptures that help us know that (laughs) conflict is going to happen. How do we deal with that for your honor and for your glory? Lord, we want to have hearts that are given over to the harder road, the, the more narrow road, the peacemaking road. It's just too easy to just write people off by either moving away from them or attacking them. But you're calling for something so fundamentally different. And here's the deal. You practiced it. You practiced peacemaking with us. And as a result of that, we have the ability and the power to do that with others. Thank you for Jesus and the difference he makes in our lives by coming and building peace with us. We live in that today, and we want to live in that in the relationships around us. We pray now in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.